It is my privilege to invite you to today's sermon podcast. I have made the Apostle Paul's prayer request my own. When he states in Ephesians six nineteen, pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, the words may be given to me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. May today's sermon come alive to you and aid you in your understanding of God's plan for your life. Big thanks to Wyatt and Crystal for that song. Um, I'm blessed uh, by the talent of, of some of the young people in our church. I'm, I'm a little aged by it as well as Kyla and Katie and Wyatt were all a part of the youth department when I was in charge of it. Um, and uh, they are... Um, it's just a blessing uh, as they're in the midst of their adulthood years where they could be uh, going about and doing a lot of different things that they're using their talents uh, for the glory of our God. And it's a blessing for sure. Um, I was also uh, informed uh, this week of some very uh, significant events that happened uh, just 26,662 days ago. If you didn't know... Um, Tony Banks was born on March 27, 1950. Uh, does anybody know who that is? Guitarist of a popular British band. Uh, he was in a band with uh, Peter Gabriel, uh, also a guy named Phil Collins. Anybody know the name of this band? Genesis. Genesis. Thank you. Thank you, Dallas. Yes. Um, also, uh, in that week, the number one hit uh, song was Gene Autry's hit, Peter Cottontail. And if... Uh, you were gearing up to see a movie, you might uh, be checking out the new releases of Dynamite Pass, Hostile Country, Red Skelton's The Yellow Cab Man, or even Conspirator, starring Robert Taylor and Elizabeth Taylor, no relation. If you were a bookworm, you might have been reading Hemingway's Across the River and to the Trees, or probably more likely Dr. Seuss's If I Ran a Zoo. But most significantly, just 26,662 days ago, our friends uh, Jim and Eula Dunn were getting married. Tomorrow, they will be celebrating 73 years of marriage, and I think we can all say congratulations to that. I think our friends from Open Heart have something they'd like to present to you. Um, that example of commitment uh, to each other is is such a blessing to me, and I'm sure uh, it is for others as well. So uh, may you both have the happiest of anniversaries tomorrow. I was also told via Facebook uh, that today is James Ferdinand's birthday. So if you see him uh, in the sound booth after church, go up and wish him a happy birthday. Um, I'm already planning how I'm going to sing a three-part harmony for his birthday. I'm not, i got to record it first and then record the second part. I'm, I'm still working on it, but it's going to be wonderful. So wish him a happy 47th birthday. So, Actually, I don't know. I just threw that number out. I think it's, I think it's more than that, but I'm trying to be flattering. So, Throughout history, there have been many notable feuds. Some of them family feuds, some of them political feuds, some of them stemming from land or territory disputes, and some that really just make no sense at all. For instance, the feud of Queen Elizabeth of England, the Protestant, and 
Mary, Queen of Scots, the Catholic. There's Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr, uh, two characters involved in arguably the most well-known duel in American history. There's the historical bad blood between Clan Campbell and Clan MacDonald in Scotland, which you might describe as 17th century cattle wrestling taking, taken to the next level. There are the, the Hatfields and the McCoys, the Montagues and the Capulets, uh, Lennon versus McCartney, Steve Young versus Montana, uh, Jets versus Sharks, T-Birds versus the Scorpions, the Goonies versus the Fratellis, Earps versus Clantons, the list goes on and on. Our world is not short of feuds and rivalries with many negative impacts as a result. And oftentimes, the original spark that set the feudal fire is largely forgotten. But these feuds pale in comparison to one that took place in the Shire between a group of hobbits known as the Baggins of Bag End and their arch nemesis, the Sackville Bagginses. Most of this feud stems from a simple property disagreement, as you may already know, I'm sure you already know. The home of Bag End, located in Hobbiton in the Shire, was a prime piece of real estate. It was located at the end of Bagshot Row, and it was filled with, quote, countless rooms and beautiful round windows, and a garden maintained by the Gamgee family that lived down the road. The Sackville Bagginses could not wait to take on the home, but they were often kept away by the vitality of Bilbo Baggins, who lived an incredibly long life, even by Hobbit standards. This feud escalated when first Bilbo was decreed dead after going on an adventure and then coming back and reclaiming his home, uh, but made even worse when Bilbo's nephew Frodo was granted the inheritance of the home and not the Sackville Bagginses. Finally, as I'm sure all of you know, a greater need arose and Frodo decided to sell Bag End to the Sackville Baggins family. And I'd like to read to you the final encounter that took place in that feud. From the Lord of the Rings, it says, After lunch, the Sackville Bagginses, Lobelia, and her sandy-haired son, Lotho, turned up much to Frodo's annoyance. Ours at last, said Lobelia as she stepped inside. And let me take it aside. When you read a book, you have to do the different voices for the different characters. Uh, I can't do voices very well, so all of mine kind of sound exactly the same, or the accent sounds exactly the same, and it's all terrible. Uh, but for the most part, my kids like it, so I'm going to keep rolling with it. It was not polite nor strictly true, for the sale of Bag End did not take effect until midnight, but Lobelia can perhaps be forgiven. She had been obliged to wait about 77 years longer for Bag End than she had once hoped, as she was now 100 years old. Anyway, she had come to see that nothing she had paid for had been carried off, and she wanted the keys. It took a long while to satisfy her as she had brought a complete inventory with her and went right through it. In the end, she departed with Lotho and the spare key and the promise that the other key would be left at the Gamgees in Bagshot Row. She snorted and showed plainly that she thought that the Gamgees capable of plundering the hole during the night. Frodo did not offer her any tea. Yikes. If there wasn't a feud that tops all other feuds, it is this one here. If you didn't know uh, the etiquette of tea culture 
Education First, which is a, a student website that, that helps uh, parents and families go on trips around the world, they declare that you should never have the audacity to make yourself a cup of tea without literally offering everyone in the surrounding area if they should also fancy a cup. So the fact that Bilbo Baggins had guests in his home and did not offer them a cup of tea is the epitome of some incredible bad blood. Surely, many of the feuds that have been mentioned had some sort of justification for their hostility, but it is interesting to think about what might have happened if some good old-fashioned kindness had been placed into some of those circumstances. I think we underestimate the power of kindness, but today we will look at a story that I believe sets the standard for the use of kindness in the midst of a potentially hostile situation. If you have your Bible, you can turn into 2 Samuel chapter 9. Our passage today focuses on David, king of Israel. At this point in David's life, uh, things are going pretty good. Uh, He's been established as king over all of Israel. He's God's anointed one. He has conquered the Jebusites that occupied Jerusalem, and he has also subdued the Philistines. He has brought the Ark of the Covenant from Kiriath-Jairim in Judah to Jerusalem, known as the city of David. He is no longer a vagabond. He's no longer in exile. He's no longer on run from King Saul. Things are going pretty well. And it would be easy for David to look around and say, I think I've seen this film before. Now that I am in charge, who can I turn the tables on? Who wronged me while I was down and out that I can enact my vengeance on? But we will see in this passage that David takes quite a different route than this line of thinking. So if you'd stand with us at this time, we'll read 2 Samuel chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. We will read the entire chapter, so make sure you bend your knees while you're standing. We don't need... I don't have my camera up, so I can't record you and submit it to America's Funniest Home Videos if you fall and pass out. So, 2 Samuel chapter 9, hear the word of the Lord this morning. David asked, is there anyone left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Maker, son of Amiel in Lodibar. So King David had him brought from Lodibar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson 
everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson will be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of kindness that was shown in this text today. Lord, may we get a greater view for what the power of kindness can hold for each one of our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The first notion I want to tackle is the precedent of kindness that's established by David and Jonathan. We find in 1 Samuel chapter 20 that David and Jonathan are trying to figure out what King Saul's intentions are towards David. David fears Saul is trying to kill him while Jonathan is convinced that his father would not do this. I've always appreciated that about Jonathan. He has this friend that he cares deeply for in David, but he has this loyalty, this fidelity to his father. And somehow he's able to walk that tightrope between the two. We can learn a lot from him about how to navigate relationships where there are tensions. But we find that the storm is brewing around Saul the king. In the meantime, David and Jonathan broker a covenant of kindness and peace that's fostered by their brotherly love. We find the thrust of this covenant in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 14 through 15. Jonathan is quoted in this passage saying, But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. I think this covenant of peace is significant because it not only involves the lives of David and Jonathan, but their descendants as well. The kindness of David and Jonathan was to be passed down from generation to generation. It was to be upheld even amongst their descendants as a legacy of their friendship. 1 Samuel twenty forty two further establishes this fact. Jonathan said to David, go in peace. For we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. The next amazing thing I think we find in this text is is the mutuality of kindness that David shared with his friend Jonathan. It is one thing to say something along the lines of, well, we, we'll be nice to them if they're nice to us. Um, but it is a whole nother notion to put that into action when the alternative might be more beneficial. Um, our biblical text in the history of David notes that he was certainly not a perfect person, uh, but he was a man of his word. 
David was honorable towards his friend Jonathan, and he sought to uphold his word. 2 Samuel 9 verse 1 tells us this, David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Due to a variety of circumstances, the family line of Saul had been largely blotted out of history. In the battle of Mount Gilboa, Saul was slain along with three of his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. His son Ishbosheth was killed uh, by two of his own captains later on. And later, due to an agreement made with the Gibeonites, seven more descendants of Saul were executed in reparation to the Gibeonites for Saul's attempt to eliminate their entire people. If you will recall, David was also married to one of Saul's daughters, Michal, and she was childless. This leaves only one descendant of Saul left, Mephibosheth, and his story is one of difficulty. We find out about Mephibosheth after the deaths of Saul and Jonathan in the battle of Mount Gilboa. 2 Samuel 4.4 says this, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. What a tragedy. Why did the nurse need to flee? The threat to Mephibosheth's life was a perceived reality. Mephibosheth was a descendant of King Saul, and it was pretty obvious how popular David was amongst the people of Israel. It would have been very easy for the nurse of Mephibosheth to see how much peril her charge could potentially be in. And in her haste to flee, the child fell and became disabled in both feet. Mephibosheth's life forever changed, not only at the loss of his father and grandfather, but in the loss of his functioning feet. Even still, even with all of that, David He could have rationalized hostilities towards Mephibosheth. He could have sought vengeance against Mephibosheth simply because of his connection to his grandfather, Saul. Revenge uh, can be a strong motivator, and it can carry on from generation to generation. In my opening thoughts, I mentioned uh, the animosity that's held by Clan MacDonald against Clan Campbell in Scotland. If you don't know, there was a lot of cattle wrestling going on in the 17th century, so there were always tensions there. But um, there was uh, an instance where uh, Clan MacDonald wanted to, they wanted Clan MacDonald to back a certain uh, individual for the, for the throne, and they refused to do so. And uh, what ended up happening is Clan MacDonald opened their home to members of Clan Campbell. And in the night while they were sleeping, several, I think 30, several and 30 are much different numbers. I apologize for that. (laughs) Many were massacred uh, that night. It happened 331 years ago, yet you can still go to pubs and restaurants and shops in the highlands of Scotland, and you can see a sign that states, we don't serve Campbell's. 
and they never forgave, and they never forgot. In the 20th century, in Russia, Joseph Stalin became the leader of the Soviet Union, and his paranoia and his fear of usurpation led him to eliminate any and every perceived threat to his regime. It's known as the Great Purge or the Great Terror, and it saw more than 750,000 people executed, while more than a million individuals were sent to forced labor camps, including the very people who helped bring forth the revolution in the first place. The notion of fear, the fear of reprisal, the, the need for revenge, they can be such great motivators. And I think David could have very well given in to any paranoia or fear. He could have justified every humanly good reason to enact vengeance on the house of Saul. Hypothetically, Mephibosheth, as Saul's grandson, he could stake a claim to the throne. Lame as his feet might have been, he could have gathered a group of like-minded men and plotted a coup. Even further, Mephibosheth's son Micah, Saul's great-grandson, could someday stake a claim to the throne as well. It's possible that Mephibosheth had his father's friendliness towards David, but he could have just as well had his grandfather's jealousy. David could have seen the threat and, quite frankly, eliminated it quite easily, just as many so-called leaders have done throughout human history. But David takes a different approach with Mephibosheth because he had a greater fidelity to his friend Jonathan. And he honored his commitment to his friend. 2 Samuel 9-7 tells the following of David's encounter with Mephibosheth. And I can imagine that Mephibosheth might be a little bit afraid. It's like when somebody in authority calls you and they want to meet with you. Oh, man, I don't want to go to the principal's office. What are they going to say? I don't want to have that meeting with my boss. Whatever it is, it's going to be bad. I just know it. Mephibosheth had no idea what David was bringing him for. But he knew the risk that it brought. And our text says, David tells him, don't be afraid. For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. David then commands Ziba, the steward of Saul's household, the one who's been maintaining his home and his lands and everything that's involved to maintain and, and manage the entire place on behalf of Mephibosheth. So Ziba Ziba, and all of his children and all of his servants, they run the homestead. And he moves, Mephibosheth is moved from a place of fear to a place of honor. He is treated like one of the sons of David. He eats regularly at the king's table. What a gift. What a gift for David to bestow upon Mephibosheth. What a way for him to honor the legacy of his friend Jonathan. David, quite simply, he knew the significance 
of his covenant of peace with Jonathan. He took it seriously. This is an honorable man in David that we see doing an incredible deed to uphold the mutuality of kindness to his friend. In the letter to the Ephesians, we find the Apostle Paul writing about the mutuality of kindness. Ephesians 4.32 says the following, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. We find in Paul's word the same spirit found in the covenant of peace between Jonathan and David. We, as a fellowship of believers, are called to be kind and compassionate to one another. Jesus spoke of this this kindness and mutual love because it would be seen as a distinguishing feature of his followers. John 13, 35 says that everyone, I'm paraphrasing here, everyone will know that we follow Jesus because of our love. In our last note that we have for today, we find in the person of Jesus Christ, the ultimate act of kindness. In his great kindness, God had a plan to reconcile all of us unto him. The ultimate act of kindness found in the work of God, giving his son that we might have a chance to have reconciliation. Paul writes to the church in Rome about God's kindness and where it is intended to lead us. Romans 2, 4 says this, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? God's kindness is shown in the sending of his Son, and its full intent is to lead us to repentance that we might be made right, that we might be reconciled unto God. While humanity was in the throes of its own selfish corruption, unable to redeem itself, we were given the great kindness of God and given the spirit of reconciliation through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. To him be all praise and glory forever. Amen. Paul writes again to the Ephesian church the following, But because of his great love for us, God, who in his rich mercy made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed there. It is again, I've highlighted, I've underlined it in every passage that I could find, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. As great as the gift that David, king of Israel, gave to Mephibosheth, there is not any greater, more amazing gift than to receive the kindness of God. It is given to each one of us freely, without respect for our station in life, 
nor in respect to our list of accomplishments or achievements. It is a gift given without consideration for the things we have done, the transgressions we have committed against God and others. We have an opportunity to experience the kindness of God found in the person of Jesus Christ in this very moment. It is a very simple act to ask God for his kindness, to accept his son, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior of your life. I'd like to give anyone that might want to experience God's kindness this morning the opportunity to do so. I'm going to say a a brief prayer that you can say as well. It's a simple prayer. Asking for God's kindness in your life, committing your life to the Lord, accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but even more so as your friend. You can say this prayer silently to yourself as God can hear what you say, even if you don't put it into audible words. But if you do say this prayer, I would ask that you not keep it to yourself. But you share it with someone here in this congregation so that we can celebrate with you the kindness of God coming into your life at this very moment. So bow your heads with me as we pray. Lord God, thank you for your kindness to me. Thank you for sending Jesus to the world to be among humanity to show people how they should live, but ultimately to give up his life so that my relationship with you might be restored. I ask for Jesus to come into my life, to be my Lord and my Savior and my friend. May your loving kindness guide and direct me all the days of my life. In Jesus' name I pray. I want to thank you for joining today's sermon podcast. You can find a copy of today's sermon as well as other sermons and the sermon outline from today on our church's website, www.mvcnaz.org. It is my prayer also that you will seek out a church home that recognizes the authority of the Bible.